Plant Peoples. So I see KPFT as kind of a, a shining light that we can all turn to, you know, not just for entertainment, but for information and for perspective and for clarity. Buddy Mondlock. So yeah, please keep listening to KPFT. It's important, and they're the ones who are playing the kind of music that you love and that I love and that me and my friends make. They're kind of holding the torch for us. Hi, I'm Matt Harlan from right here in Houston, Texas. KPFT, special radio station. When I moved here, put it on the dial, and I don't think I've ever taken it off. 15 or so years I've been around. Listen for their music and a whole lot more on KPFT 90.1 FM. Hi, I'm Dwayne Bradley, and you might know me from Open Journal, Monday evenings at 6 p.m. Thanks for listening to KPFT Houston. Welcome to Growing Up in America. Claire Dutre here with me, Bob Sanborn. How's it going, Claire? It's good, it's good. Oh, there we go. I'm making sure they can hear us on the air. I know they they're anticipating. They can hear us. <laughs> I know everyone stops their radio when they hear that song. <laughs> everyone stops radio when they hear you, Claire. That's the I deal. Know. That's the deal. So, uh, hey, a good show today on Growing Up in America. It is, it is. We have a, a lot of great guests, as always. We have an in-house guest which is exciting. Maddie's here, right? Maddie, the intern, is right here with us in the studio. Maddie so we're excited to have her. Maddie, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good this morning. Very yeah, good. Very good. And we're going to get to Maddie here in a minute. Uh, welcome to Growing Up in America here on 90.1 KPFT Pacifica Radio. This is a discussion on our children, public policy, and how do we as a city and a community do when it comes to taking care of every single one of our children? Claire Dutre is here from the staff at Children at Risk. I'm Bob Sanborn uh, from Children at Risk. And this is a production of Children at Risk, the voice for the children of Texas, an organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, collaborative action on behalf of all the kids in Texas. And so on the show today, of course, Maddie's going to be with us. Maddie Badigas. Uh, we're going to be talking about sort of... Uh, choosing colleges and high school life yeah. and sort of fun stuff. And then uh, who else we have today? We have our very own Linda Crichado to talk about a Borderlands check-in. We have Dr. Ricky Flores back, very excited to continue conversations around his work and this hospital's work. Our very own Naomi Fletcher, very excited to hear her lovely shining voice from ECE team to talk about a few Harris County programs and another doctor. We have... Angelo is Angelo back? No, no, sorry. Oh, because that's what gotcha, I have Gotcha, everyone. I, it's not April Fool's. So I have excellent. that on my script, and I'm like, what? He's back. It's, it's not. So it's Taylor Rosenbaum's with us. Taylor is uh, going to be talking with us a little bit about the importance of uh, safe wow. gun storage. Dr. Rosenbaum. So, uh, you know, they like to sort of put in little little things in here to trick us, right? That's I know, the, the, I know. It's like your brother wrote tricked. your essay. And I was like something in so, there to make sure you read it. Uh, very good. So, um, so we doing like uh, we continuing with the? Do we have intern music? transitional music? Do Let's we know? See, do we have some? That's okay. Maddie Vargas is with us. Madeline Maddie Vargas is with us. She and, needs no music. Uh, she's an intern at Children at Risk for the summer. Where do you go to college, Maddie? I go to the College of St. Benedict and University of St. John's. So how does a young Latina from Houston end up in college in Minnesota? Um, so I went to guest prep yeah. oh, awesome. Southeast. Yeah. It's like a charter school in Houston. Yeah. It was an experience. I would say like the college guidance that I received there helped me a lot. And just like my parents overall are very supportive of like you will go out of state. You won't stay here. Oh, really? And that's unusual, right? I mean, yeah. we find with many Latina students that their parents actually want them to stay in town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So they pushed me a lot. And I remember, because um, I'm like adopted by family kind of. Mm-hmm. So whenever I started living with them, which was like at, 
eighth grade yeah mm-hmm. um you know once you start high school you start that gpa and they're just yeah. like just so you know you're gonna go to college and i was like what's college like, <laughs> i didn't know what it was and i was like you mean Exciting. i have to go to more school because i hated school <laughs> like i was just Are always sure? getting like c's and everything and then now i'm an a student in college. Wow. Exciting. and what are you studying i'm studying nursing and um my, well my, my major is nursing my minor is global health and, and Madeline, did i understand this right you were adopted in eighth grade is that yeah, by fam- not officially like by law, but I live with my my family. So technically, they're my cousins, but they're much older. Than but me. you switched in eighth yeah. grade. That's a tough transition. Yeah. And how was that for you in high school doing that transition? Um, it was kind of hard because you know I was like learning like the way that my new family kind of does things versus mm-hmm. like how like because I used to live with my mom like how my mom would do things. So it was like very different for me and. Like, getting used to, like, okay, like, once you come home, you're going to, like, do homework. But before you come home, after school, you're going to, like, join sports and you're going to get involved and, you know, make a lot of friends and do all this stuff. Because if not, like, you'd be by yourself. You know, Maddie, one of the things, uh, uh, you know, that I like about working at Children's Risk, right, because I was a child at risk and, mm-hmm. you know, you were a child at risk. And, and this transition for you, uh, you know, of going to college, it's, it's a big transition in life. What have you found to be sort of the biggest thing for you going from Yes Prep and then going to the College of St. Benedict. What's been the big difference? Well, the College of St. Benedict, it's um, a PWI, so predominantly white institution. And, well, yes, Prep Southeast is mostly Latinos, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so going from, like, mo- like mainly, like, what you are, like, your community, to being a minority and, like, a big, yeah. like, white majority, you know. So... That was kind of hard because it was kind of hard to find my people. Like, the way that I would do things is different than how the people at my school would do things. Yeah. So, like, like from, like, you know, picking up after yourself in the hallways and, like, living with the roommates. Like, a big change, but I feel like I adapt pretty well. So, it wasn't as hard for me. How's the food in uh, Minnesota? Very side eye. Like, it's... <laughs> Very side- yeah, I, got, I saw the side eye over here. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's not the best, but... I'm actually excited because this year or this upcoming yeah. year, I'm going to be a junior and I get my own apartment because I'm a, I'm a um, resident assistant also. Mm-hmm. So like I get my own apartment and I'm able to cook like my home food. So Very cool. Thinking of all of our, our listeners right now who might be transitioning from high school to college, what is one thing that you were um, more worried about that you think was eased pretty quickly your freshman year? I would say like making friends mm. and making friends who are like me and like come from the same background and and how did you break that barrier? I joined a lot of like clubs and like like I joined student government like who it's like a nursing major joining student <laughs> government <laughs> like what no that's um, exciting you have to be involved yeah. civically mm-hmm. no matter where you are yeah. cool and what do you think was one thing you didn't expect in the transition from high school to college? I didn't expect how hard the classes would be. And, like, how lonely sometimes it would feel, like, going to a very um, gloomy area in the in the U.S. Like, compared to Houston, it's always, like, sunshine or, like, rain, you know? Yeah. Over there, it's very cloudy and snowy and yeah. cold. cold. And I know Yes Prep has immense amount of support, but uh, it could be overwhelming <laughs> right now for maybe a junior in high school looking at colleges. How did you narrow down to a school in Minnesota from all the options? Um, so originally, I didn't even look at College of St. Benedict in my senior year. Um, I was eligible for a scholarship, and that's how I kind of found the school. Awesome. But up until then, like, UTSA was my, my main choice, and, like, I was going to go there. Like, I had visited twice. Um, I'd say, like, making sure your admissions counselor from the college is, like, you're keeping in contact. Like, you feel the vibe, and then if it's, like, a good vibe and they invite you out to, you know, go see the university or college, then hmm. it's pretty good. Yeah, this is my favorite. Sorry, I'm taking the air time. This is my favorite question, but I'm curious. If you could now, knowing what you know, add one class to every high school in America, what would it teach the students? One class. That's a good question. That's my favorite. I ask it all the time. Well, I haven't asked it once on this show. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Hmm. Do you know, Maddie? Well, I'm a a STEM major, so Mm. I would say like... More math. More science because yeah. I guess probably we didn't have like AP I'm all chem. for more science, <laughs> yeah, yeah, more science, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, and everyone else, every student that possibly is listening <laughs> is turning up. the radio yeah, off. Like, yeah, why would we, why would we do this? And and you're at Children at Risk this summer. Uh, what is it that's that's sort of exciting you about being in this environment where you're working on children's policy and family policy in the state of Texas? It's very interesting because, like, 
I'm like learning a lot more than I usually did like back in high school or like yeah. in my Minnesotan college about Texas. So learning how like the different like policies and inter- like inter- intersect with health and all that yeah. type of things. So. Well, very good. <laughs> Maddie Vargas is with us and she's an intern at Children at Risk and talking about that high school to college transition. What year are you going to be this next year at, in college? A junior. A junior. Well, wow, fantastic. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks for being on Growing Up in America. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, exciting. What it, class would you add, Dr. Bob? Wow. Isn't that good? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm surprised you weren't thinking about it the whole time. <laughs> you know what I would say, knowing what I know now and having worked at many universities, uh, I would say some sort of component of study abroad or going, yeah. traveling, even if it's to a different city, but just sort of seeing experience some different based. different environment, a different experience. Uh, I always think that, that you really learn a lot when you travel abroad. So even if the first time you travel, like here in Texas, Mexico City or London, you know, those are sort of the easier transitions. Right. Uh, I would really encourage that even a week, you know, or something. It's it's yeah. so important for kids to see something different. So yeah. you? Yeah. Um, I, I go back and forth. I'm going to choose the cop-out answer, but it's not really, I just get this answer a lot when I ask and it's just a a basic world class. It's not really skills, just like how to write a check, even though financial literacy would be a part because I would have loved to know what taxes are in high school and what I'm supposed to do with them and save for them. Um, but in general, just right now, human empathy, but random topics about what's going on Mm. and what your plugin can be and. I don't know. I just feel like the social emotional learning aspect kind of playing into life skills. Yeah. I, th- I think there's a lot that we could be doing in our schools uh, that could enliven the experience, enrich the experience, yeah. sort of think outside of the box where it really prepares kids for something different. And I know that when I chose to start teaching at the University of Houston downtown, and this is the undergraduate and graduate students, but they they have this sort of institutional experience. But when they're when they start you know, meeting leaders from the community or visiting other cities or going abroad, you know, it's, it just widens that perspective on what the possibilities are. And we really should not be waiting until graduate school or undergraduate high school. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about, uh, good private schools you know as as eighth graders they're doing their trips to washington right, dc right. and they're going places and uh you know sometimes the best experience is that travel in the van right when you're getting to know kids yeah. unfortunately they had right? a cool career fair at my school where they bought actually like almost mini centers for the kids to go to like a grown-up children's museum but they had like a health one a mechanics one so it was cool to see them kind of engage more with the career yeah neat. very good and we're excited Maddie's here for all, with us all summer. Maddie, we'll have to have you back on the air at some point in the near future. So oh, for thank sure. You. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Next up is our good buddy, uh, Dr. Ricky Flores, who's the clinical director at Texas Children's Cancer and Hematology up in the Woodlands. Dr. Flores, how you doing, man? Good, and you. Thank Very, you for having me back. Absolutely. Thank you so much uh, for being back on the show. And so we wanted to talk to you a little bit today. Uh, We're just going to continue the conversations. I know you have some interesting insight on not only access to basic needs of the children's you see, um, but something about sports. I know you mentioned and sports injuries. Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. So basically I'm also the president of, uh, Carlos Correa, the baseball star, um, uh, from the Houston Astros and now Minnesota twins. And what we do together, I've been kind of like leveraging these type of platforms and, and athletes and celebrities to use their their recognition and platform I'm following to kind of like support our children too and uh, and kind of like move the community to to raise awareness of the needs of these particular children the uh, kids with cancer and other mm. severe illnesses and uh it has been very helpful because we we've been able to raise awareness raise funds and then not only that also provide uh, transformative experiences for example I said to the to the different athletes, and then I'm able to bring families of cancer with patients and patients with cancer to the games, to to parties, to special celebrations, and then honor them as heroes. And uh, usually, at least, uh, we've been doing it over the past several years, and it's incredible because it's one of the things that the kids never forget. 
Dr. Flores, talk about the importance of that. I mean, the, those uplifting experiences for them. And we hear about, you know, the Make-A-Wish and the sports figures getting involved. What does that do for a child patient when they get that sort of attention from uh, celebrities and sort of their own personal heroes? Oh, no, yeah, that's a great question. Actually, it's interesting because it kind of like empowers them. Mm. I remember I've had some patients that are being bullied or at the same time they're isolated from their friends and so on and being able to talk and have some like a few minutes and being honored by some of these celebrities that have millions of followers. They they feel special and um, and also kind of like give them some time away of their, their, you know, daily routine of uh, therapy, medication, chemotherapy, hospital visits and so on. And, uh, and uh, I think that that's very important because not only for, for the, chi- the child, but also the siblings and the parents, it gives them some, a sense of, uh, of uh, belonging or a sense of uh, entertainment or, or feeling like a normal family for, for a few hours or a few days. Yeah, I know you spoke a lot last time or a little bit mainly um, on families and access. And it's not just the health care and the access to worry about, but it's the housing, the transportation, the basic needs on top of that. And then adding this aspect of possibly having your child's mental health deplete with the bullying. I can't even imagine um, what's that like, what that is like and how this can help uplift the whole family spirits. Yes. And, and what we find, too, is that once you have a a kid with a severe illness, then the other siblings and the other family too, and the spouses get neglected. All the attention goes to that child, and uh, and so that that's why we try to include the whole family whenever we do such events, and uh, whenever I talk to my to my athletes or my celebrities. Yeah. Dr. Flores, when we talk about access to health care and we talk about um, cancer treatment, what do you think is not included as much in the conversation that should be? I think those things that you have mentioned, especially housing, transportation, and the emotional aspect and the emotional support of it all, because uh, the patient can come in, I can give them chemotherapy once a week and then send them home, but what about the emotional aspect? What about uh, what they're going through at home? What about the other needs of uh, housing, transportation, and so on? And those are the type of things that we try to address, but not unless you have a big center with a big support, social workers and medical staff and so on that know to ask about it. Sometimes it, it goes unidentified because you can imagine it becomes the norm for this family. So you ask them briefly, are you doing okay? And they're going to say yes. But when you dig deeper, you realize that they didn't have lunch, they didn't have uh, money for gas, that the kid is depressed, that the brother is depressed, and and, uh, and so on. Because keep in mind that 94% of the uh, parents with a kid who has cancer or severe illness will have some sort of a job interruption. Either they lose their job or they have to go part-time or they lose an opportunity to continue being promoted promoted or, or trained academic, academically speaking. Yeah. Dr. Flores, we, we're just reaching the end of a legislative session here in Texas, right? Where uh, once again, Texas is one of only 10 states in the country that didn't do Medicaid expansion, right? So really, uh, we, we look at Houston, right? And we have the highest level of uninsured kids in the developed world and the highest number of uninsured people in the developed world. And so what does that mean for your work and for children in Houston who might get serious illness uh, when we have such a large portion of children that are uninsured? No, definitely it depletes our services and it makes it harder on everyone. And then we accept kids who are here at the Texas Hospital. We accept our children who are uninsured and so on. But you can imagine that we can, we have to find those uh, those funding from other places. Yeah. And uh, we rely a lot on the community and big donors and so on. But it definitely affects the, uh, the, the care that we give these families and also something that is overlooked too is the stress of our medical staff, nurses, social workers, and the whole hospital staff because they, they it becomes part of our family, right? And then when we see like the struggles that these kids go through, then it affects everyone in the community. Yeah. Dr. Ricky Flores is with Texas Children's Hospital. He's up in the woodlands. Uh, Dr. Flores, thank you very, very much. Muchísimas gracias por todo lo que haces. Uh, and uh, thanks for being on the Growing Up in America radio program. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Boy, oh, killing me 
All right, nice little countdown here as we do our da- data of the day. You you love the countdown, though, don't you? Claire? I do. That's the whole lead into the data segment. Yeah, yeah that's like it. It's, it's the best irony of the show. So on the line with us for our date of the day is Kim Parker. Kim Parker, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Dr. Bob. So glad to be here. Yeah, we wanted Beyonce to be your lead in, right? Because you're such a headliner, Kim, that we thought, who could be a better? Actually, we do, actually, we do this for every date of the day, don't we? We do, but her and Layla are both headliners and we go to their show so, every day. So, uh, you know, Claire and I saw that the number of the day is uh, 41. And we're trying to figure 41. out what 41 is. Did you have a guess, Claire, before uh, I just folded Professor it so Parker I could... takes it away? <laughs> uh, it's another number that's too low but not high enough. Maybe 41% <laughs> of children are in summer camps this summer. 41%? Oh, that's a good one. I think that's too high. I think uh, ah, it's sure. probably. So, uh, Professor Parker, what do you think on this one? What's your, uh, uh, what, what is the 41? What does it relate to, Kim? Yeah, so I think it's really relevant to the conversation right now, which is only 41.4% of Texas teachers are people of color, whereas a little over 72% of Texas students are of color. So, And we also have close to 5% of Texas schools that have no teachers of color. And so even though there's many factors that contribute to this uneven terrain of Texas children's outcomes, data suggests that diversifying Texas education workforce benefits students of all backgrounds. Because culturally, congruency is a really important to improving positive outcomes. Wow. Very. Now, Claire, you were in the classroom and it you was. taught for a while. And, um, you know, when I go to school, I notice, right, that uh, smart Latino kids, smart African-American kids, they do, they love it when their teacher is Latino or African-American. Yeah. T- students definitely in lower income areas as well, definitely um, clung to teachers that look like them and mentors that look like them just for the sake of feeling a sense of security, especially the students that were Latinx at my school and um, the teachers that, well, even just spoke Spanish in yeah. general. If they yeah. had, oh, I'm getting too close to the microphone. Yeah. Um, weak English proficiency just to help build those English skills, but just to feel empowered and talk to someone that might understand their personal experiences more. So, Kim, when we see a school that is, uh, you know, one of the five percent where there are no kids, no teachers of color, what does that mean? If you're if you're a, a child in that school, you're of color, and and all your teachers are white, what does that mean for you? Yeah, I think that it it really means that like, can they really understand where you're coming from? Do they understand that your your family, your community, like how you see uh, education, et cetera? Like, I think that being able to have culturally congruent classrooms where there's a diverse a diverse group of students and a diverse group of teachers allows those kids to be able to uh, relate to the teacher and vice versa, have the teacher relate to them so that, you know, teachers are caring more for more than just the academic success of our, of our students. They're caring for the whole child. And that means also understanding kind of where they're coming from. So where's their starting point so that they can learn. One of the things that we've seen, Kim, is that uh, when we look across the state in the valley, uh, where we do see a lot of Latino teachers and a lot of Latino, uh, a large Latino student body, you know, primarily, you know, 99 percent of many times the kids are Latino kids. Uh, We also have higher retention and we also see Mm -hmm. a significant degree of success amongst low income populations is is part of that. I mean, part of that must be that they're being taught by teachers that look like their folks. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I I think that, you know, when when the teachers are part of the community in which they're existing in and they represent the community that they're serving, um, everyone's better for it. It makes it feel more like a, a connected community and it improves probably teacher satisfaction as much as it does student performance. Right. And at the end of the day, too, it is about understanding the students and meeting where they're at. So if you're a teacher just trying to connect with the students and be intentional in relationship building, then it will make a big impact. Um, or just more bilingual teachers in general as well. Mm-hmm. So just being intentional. Um, you don't have to speak every language, um, but learning a word here and there really helps. Also just knowing their name. Don't just yeah. point at a student. <laughs> yeah. Learn their name, learn their name correctly. Um, and it makes a big impact. I know that with my students, just making sure to outreach to them really helped. Uh, Kim and Claire, I, w- I wonder, you know, we live in a state, you know, where we have a, a number of 
pretty good teachers colleges, right? And we see recruiters from school districts from all over the country come to Texas because they're trying to recruit teachers of color, future teachers of color. Um, and, uh, when we have a state that sort of decides to scoff at the idea of DEI or inclusivity or equity, uh, it's for, if you're a young teacher of color, you must be thinking, maybe I'll go to a place that appreciates me a little bit. Do we, do we, are we at risk here, Kim in Texas, uh, when we sort of play politics a little too much and we don't pay attention to our teachers? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, I think we're currently seeing, we're already struggling with our teacher workforce. Um, and it's going to continue to be a big, big challenge to, con- to continue to recruit. I mean, I've talked to a number of people who were interested in the education field, but then due to how things have changed and the politics integrating themselves into education, they're just not really in- interested in taking taking that on. It's too hard of a, a career to jump into. And so um, as we are trying to diversify our workforces, making sure everything is culturally congruent, serving our children, I think we're going to continue to um, struggle if we can't see that flip and really allow teachers and the education system to do what it's really intended to do. Wow, yeah. Claire. Yeah, it's important to understand the population and also invest in your teachers, not just on uh, a professional development, academic level or skill building level, but on a social emotional level. We talk a lot about students and pouring into their mental health needs, and we need to make sure they're also filling that for the works work staff mm-hmm. and not also expecting them to be the cultural competence supporters and leaders in the work. It takes everyone to kind of support and do that DEI work. It's interesting, right? Because uh, we have a state legislature that works, you know, just assuming what's going on in front of them is what's reality. Right. Not looking at the long game. And the long game is we're going to need more teachers. If 72% of our kids are teachers of color, and we know that those kids do better with teachers of color, uh, you know, we need to do a better job of saying, how are we going to get more of these teachers? How are we going to recruit them? How are we going to retain them? Respect and, them. Respect them. Yeah. And yet we're, we're, <laughs> seem, we're seemingly doing everything to encourage them to leave, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's not the long game. It's very short-sighted uh, and not good for us, for our future as a state. Yeah. So it's uh, I'm hopeful. Right. Little little Fingers crossed there. So, <laughs> very good. Uh, Kim Parker uh, is the chief program officer with uh, uh, Children at Risk, and she is our data of the day expert today. Thank you, Kim, for yeah. being on Growing Up in America. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Kim. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right. You're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT. That was the first time I ever took over. Sorry, when Gretchen came, it just became my show. But we are going to to improv a little teen talk. We have Maddie back with us. Maddie, how are you? Great, how are you? Well, I I also thought that maybe uh, just in reaction to Kim's little report here on teachers. You know, Maddie, what did did it mean for you uh, as a student when you had a Latina teacher as opposed to a white teacher? Did it make much of a difference for you in the classroom? Or tell me when it did make a difference for you. Well, well, do you want me like my college accent? No, no, like like high in high school. school. High school. High school, yeah. Okay. Well, I feel like though like white teachers that I did have, like they were pretty inclusive and like they understood yeah. and like they tried to understand the culture too. So it was like It was okay. It wasn't weird and it wasn't like bad. Like I feel like what I, the education I received from them was pretty good. Pretty great, yeah. yeah. And and when you go to Minnesota now, right, where it's a little bit different, where you have a lot of these white Minnesotan teachers, they're from all over the country, but they're teaching there in Minnesota. Do you notice sometimes they don't understand what it means to be a Latina and, and does it have an impact? Yes. Um, I took a human anatomy and physiology course yeah. this past fall and um, I had a white professor in I think she was actually maybe German because mm-hmm. she like knew some German, um, and I would say that she didn't understand me like whenever I tried to reach out for help as much, versus like my um, 
I had a prof- professor from my microbiology class, like, the year before. And I feel like she understood me more because, like, she was, like, a minority. She was um, Chinese, and she actually mm. lived in Houston for a while. So we kind of mm. bonded oh, wow. on that topic. <laughs> yeah, but, like, I, I don't know. I feel like the education I received from my Chinese professor was much better. Like, she understood me. Wow, yeah. that's interesting. Were you going to do a little slang talk with Maddie? Is that what you <laughs> I were was, thinking, I was, but that was a, no, a no, better segue okay. into it. <laughs> no, no, I, I think we have a little bit of time, right? Because uh, I'm enjoying having Maddie on the program. Yeah, you could so, be a permanent, no, a permanent just, uh, guest <laughs> uh, host. Yeah. Um, yeah, we do have a caller later. So I'm going to give a term. I'll have Dr. Bob guess, and then Maddie, you you'll explain tell me it the to real, him. I'm positive you'll slang. know. This is teen talk with Maddie now. Okay. okay. What does it mean when someone says, at me? At me? Yeah. Like someone talks at me? Like if I just say at me, what do what do you oh, think I mean? I have no idea. Do you know, Maddie? It means like just say my name kind of. Right? Yeah. Like, it's like you're being passive aggressive. Just at me. Yeah. Because oh. like a social media, you would do the at and put their username. At me. Interesting. At me. Very good. Okay. Um, I, I feel like if I would have thought a little bit, I could have had that. But <laughs> I, but I did it. I lost. I, I don't lost know if we one. already did this one. But what does it mean when I say eight? Eight? Mm-hmm. Like... Like the number it. eight? No, in a sentence. Yeah, use it in a sentence. That Maddie, how would you use it in a sentence? Eight. Oh, like you just ate. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, like just you like just had a eight. stumble. That You just had a stumble. <laughs> no. That was like a major faux pas. No, no. No? Who okay. was a person that would eat? Like, like, let's say like somebody dressed up and they looked really good. Like they ate. Oh. You know, yeah. Like they look really good. <laughs> okay. Like, it's used to express praise, admiration for a certain action, emotion performed by someone. Wow. Yeah. They ate. It's sort of like when Maddie walks into the office every day, they're all, everyone's like, Maddie ate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if someone, like is Becky's that, dress I, on that, Sunday ate. Becky's <laughs> dress on Sunday at the big brunch. <laughs> yeah, it ate. I'm just saying. What, is it, what does it mean when a girl beats her face? Beats her face? Yeah. Too much makeup. Yeah, to apply makeup to the face. Oh. But it's good she would eat. That was a she good... <laughs> she would have I'm getting at least one round of applause from the from the control room on that one. We'll do two more. What does it mean when someone says bet? Bet mm-hmm. means, of course, I'll do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was good. I feel like you've heard that before. No, that was a good guess. Oh, okay. Last one. What is a beige flag? Oh, you know, the New York Times, oh, my no. only reference, just did a big reference on this no. beige flag. I think this is very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. We all know red flags, right? So when Maddie has a boyfriend, all these red flags, like, oh, man, <laughs> stay away from that. I hope you have a flag. Stay from that. And then, it's in Minnesota. Uh, uh, and then, but a beige flag is like something, this is very, to me, it's very interesting. It's like, it's quirky. It could be bad, but I can live with it, right? It's your beige flag. And yeah. you, I mean... What red flags for other people are like beige flags for you, Claire, right? <laughs> so it's that's like green flags. <laughs> so it's like I don't uh, see, red but flags. I love this idea, you know. Like, so a typical beige flag might be, I don't know, uh, like for it a might lot be of people, an ick for, me, for some, for me, a red flag is like uh, when I was dating would be like someone who's a picky eater. But yeah. for a lot of people, that's a beige flag. Like, yeah, I don't like that he's a picky eater, but I know, saw someone I'll go out say a beige flag is their boyfriend will never be silent during meals, and so he'll look up questions during dinner. So they'll be in I public, and he's asking her like forty questions to ask your spouse. Yeah, that's a beige flag. So it's not good, but it's not bad. Uh, what are, what's a beige flag for you, Maddie? Well, I actually didn't know what beige flag meant. So oh, right we out, we See, out Gen Z. <laughs> yeah, out Gen Z. Or, or maybe Gen, now we... <laughs> <laughs> we are lame. Do you have a beige flag, Maddie? Do you, there's something that uh, your current boyfriend or girlfriend has that you just like... Uh, I'm actually not dating anyone, so okay, I, don't, so I can't tell you no what Did you hear flag. that, Ray? No, I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let her think on it for next time. But thank uh, you so much for coming yeah, back on, good. Maddie. Yeah, thanks, Maddie. Thanks for being here. Spur of the moment, slaying, <laughs> and also giving us an idea. I know, she All ate. Right. Yeah, yeah, very good. <laughs> the script for the hell of it addicted to betrayal but you're relevant you're terrified to look down because if you dare all right
had everyone waiting at the edge of their seats. Let's go down to the border. Let's go to El Paso and Linda Corchado, who is the director of the Children's Immigration Network at Children at Risk. And she's in El Paso, right on the border. Uh, Linda, I, w- I was just there um, uh, down on the border and we went to Sacred Heart. And this Sunday I was at an event where I spoke a little bit and I talked about uh, some of the families that we were seeing. What what is what's happening right now on the border with some of these families that you and I visited with? Uh, I mean, is has it slowed down considerably, or what? What are things looking like? Yeah, hi everyone. I'm glad to be with you all today. Uh, we are seeing a slowdown in migration processing um, here on the border. Uh, a lot of people think that has to do with the CBP one app um, that that migrants are meant to go through first. Yeah. They are meant to have a check-in, and if they don't have that check-in with ICE and don't have that appointment with them through the app, uh, they're meant to show that they did try to apply for asylum in another country, which is very impractical and, and also not safe for many asylum seekers. So we are still seeing a decline in crossing. Yeah, and you said it's through an app. I know you talked about last time, but what does this mean for those who don't have access to um, technology or just resources in general to even pass that barrier? Yeah, has that become an issue down there? It definitely has. You know, kidnapping is a huge problem for migrants who are displaced, uh, and so they they definitely fear that risk of, of losing their phones, of, of having their phones stolen, uh, poor internet access. The, the app itself has had problems. It's mm. sort of like Biden's Obamacare website, right? It's, they've, it's oh, also yeah. been crashing. It hasn't been accessible. And then you think about language barriers, right? So someone who speaks an indigenous language, African dialects, they have no access to that app. So these really vulnerable communities uh, face a reality where asylum does not exist for them. Yeah. Do you- you know, you and I have talked about this, Linda, that, you know, there's good stuff and bad stuff with the phone. But it seems to me one of the good things that's happening here is that there's a little bit more order. And then for if you're a family living in Mexico right now, but you're from Venezuela, uh, this this almost puts a little bit of order into your life. It gives you a little bit of extra hope, right? Because you know now that you'll be able to get processed. You may have to wait a couple of days or a week. But if you're able to get to the phone and to use the app, there's actually a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Right. And, you know, for immigration advocates also on the border, we like no news uh, to us. That's that's good. That's less scrutiny. Um, And that supports administrations that, that do support asylum. So, you know, I look at the Biden administration and I'm sure they're ecstatic about these declines in in migrant numbers. And so for us, we want normalcy. We want less attention on this and more attention on issues that that really do impact immigrant families across the board, across the country. You know, when you think about border security and and the lives of immigrants, it's like 10 percent of the reality that immigrant communities actually face. So we hope that, you know, with this normalization, we also get more of a focus on how to keep our families together. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, Linda, was that, uh, you know, we hear these stories, we see these stories, we know this is happening, where buses uh, are being um, uh, commissioned by the, the Florida state government, Texas government, and others to take some of these migrants to New York and to California. And uh, one of the things that, you know, in, in some ways migrants are taking advantage of this, but where is the injustice that's happening here? Because sometimes they're convinced to go places they really didn't want to go. Right. I mean, you look at Martha's Vineyard, for example, yeah. last year. Yeah. Um, that just made it so much harder for migrants to, to get their way out of uh, an island and get back and, and get back to their their communities and and their families that are waiting for them. So in many ways, you know, politicians are just taking migrants hostage for a political show. And it's it's just heartbreaking to watch, especially because they're so vulnerable. They just Mm -hmm. went through horrific experiences just to get here. So it's all a ploy. I, I do think it's interesting, though, right? I mean, that 
there are some migrants that wanted to go to New York and they couldn't afford it. And so they just figured out, well, I'm going to take advantage of these buses that are paid for me to go to New York. And then I could go be reunited with family. So I think it's sort of an interesting deal as well. But, but I mean, that's the flip side. I know. I, I also heard of many that were like, of course, I'd love to go to Washington. I've always wanted to see the monuments. <laughs> but, many were also ecstatic about Governor Abbott. But, you know, Martha Vin- Martha's Vineyard, that's another yeah that's it's it. another extreme that in sacramento right i'm not sure anyone really wanted to go to sacramento so but but i think right. it's sort of interesting and this is what you see right when these migrants they've been processed through asylum is that they're always looking on the bright you know they're happy they're here they're always looking on the bright side of things yeah. they just want to get to work they just want to figure it out and and i think that's one of the sides that uh, uh we often don't hear about right is the just that the joy of of being here once they get over here Right. And I mean, that's what makes our communities more dynamic because they're also more hopeful and they come in with these different perspectives. They're very engaged, very energetic. Um, So that's an infusion that all communities, I think, in in America can benefit from. And topics we'll be discussing during our immigration summit next week. Next week, the immigration summit. Perfect plug there. I bet you you that's why you're calling, not to answer these odd questions, right? (laughs) Just to talk about the immigration summit. She loves an engaging conversation. I'm here for all of it. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking to Dr. Flores earlier, and I'm sure this will also be mentioned in our immigration summit. But looking back at the 88th session, what is something that makes you hopeful and what is something that makes you worried? Well, I'm worried in general across the board about the cultural wars against mm-hmm. immigrants. Um, and so for me, that that's something that's very concerning, and it's only getting worse in many ways. Um, but, you know, I look at the Crown Act, and I was looking at photos recently of Governor Abbott signing it. Um, he had a big smile, and I thought to myself, gosh, that was such a nice experience that I had with the governor where I was just as joyful about, you know, this endeavor as he was. Mm -hmm. So I see progress there. It was unconventional. Mm -hmm. I was very shocked by it. Um, But when you think about equity and, and these important issues to all of us, that to me is a sign of hope. Yeah. It, it wasn't as bad as Florida. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that's fair. That's, we'll take that one. And then while we still have you on, what is one to all of our listeners myth that you want to debunk about anything in the immigration conversation? That may be debunked that's also me. at the immigration summit, right? Next Correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, is, is not just that we are a new chapter of the welfare state that we're immigrants come here to to leech off of our social services but in fact we're huge tax contributors Mm -hmm. um our gdp alone is is huge so i think when you look at the economic contributions itself you got to think to yourself why are we not investing in this economy that is so robust and has such a positive value add for the u.s so I think that's a huge one. It's it's not that we're a burden. In fact, in many ways, we're an asset. Tell us uh, very briefly, Linda, the immigration summit. How how what what are people going to learn at the immigration summit? How do they sign up? I know it's free. Uh, I know that there's a lot of great speakers, but tell us just uh, briefly about it. It it is free and virtual, which is a huge convenience. Yeah. Um, you know, the first one we we want to highlight the what's going on in the federal government uh, and lots of developments, right? Like now DACA recipients are eligible for medical care. Uh, That's a huge win for many of us. We're looking at the rise of of child labor. Uh, We're seeing a lot of states across the board be more lax with their child labor laws. So that's a concern for us. Um, We're looking at education, really dynamic speakers like in schools in San Antonio that we want to highlight and the work that they're doing, um, and our newcomer schools as well, and, and approaches and how to be dynamic, especially now, right, going back yeah. to our opening talk about Title 42 being lifted, that means that schools need to continue to be innovative and invest in these communities that are coming. 
Um, so, and, and we're also looking at the border and the interior in terms of enforcement and how that's impacting immigrant families. How, how do people finally, sign up? How do, how do people sign up for Linda? Cause we're running out of time. Just where do people go to um, on our children on at our risk website? Yes. Children at risk. <laughs> O-R-G. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So very good. <laughs> Linda Corchado is the Thank head of the you. children's immigration network. Linda, are you driving or is you behind a train or what's going on over there? Are you at a waterfall? Is that, uh, I am near a beautiful waterfall and I'm glad that you all joined me today near it because where I find because, peace. because El Paso is just full of waterfalls out there in the desert. Yes. So thank you. Linda. You come join. Thank you, Linda, very much. Keep up the great work. Thanks for being on growing up in America. Thank you. Stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas, the prairie. All right, on the line with us, Dr. Taylor Rosenbaum, and uh, deep, deep in the heart of Texas, Dr. Dr. Rosenbaum, a pediatrician here in Texas. Uh, how are you doing, Taylor, by the way? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on the show. How are you? Good. Very good. And so we wanted to ask a little bit about gun safety and pediatricians, because one of the things when we look at children and uh, cause of death and cause of uh, uh, injury for children is in our state is oftentimes gunshot, right? It's guns. And so when a pediatrician asks, you know, do you keep your poison locked in your closet? Uh, you know, under your sink? Is it kept away from kids? One of the other questions you should, probably should be asking is, do you have a gun in your home? What What is the pressure you feel, though, as a pediatrician in asking these things of uh, some of the parents you talk to? Yes, that's a great question and so important as um, gun violence is the number one cause of death for children in America. Uh, and that started ever since 2020. Mm-hmm. And it's actually really interesting because exactly what you um, brought up, that during our medical training, we are so encouraged to ask those safety questions. So to ask questions about how medications are locked up, ask questions about the car seat, about the pool. But we really are never taught about how to ask questions about um, gun uh anticipatory guidance, specifically safe storage. Mm. Um, So that's actually one big thing that I've been trying to bring to my hospital, specifically to our residency program, because I just think it's so important for the new upcoming doctors to all have a really great foundational knowledge of how to be asking these questions and how to have this conversation in a way that doesn't feel political, doesn't feel charged, but instead is just focused on the child. How, what percentage of households do you think in the state of Texas or even in America that own a gun are actually doing some sort of proactive gun safety, gun storage to keep their kids away uh, from, from, from firearms? That is a great question. Again, I think it's around 70, 75% based on what I could remember. I'm not exactly sure of the number, mm-hmm. but it's definitely not a hundred percent. And that's of course where our goal is. Yeah. Yeah, I know you mentioned in our initial conversation, um, speaking specifically to children who might be hospitalized for suicide attempts and their parents and families and how they might be receptive. Can you talk a little bit about that on how they are receptive to gun safety storage? Definitely. So that's actually what my fellowship research project is going to be about, because we know from previous studies that parents actually really want their pediatricians to be having these discussions with them. They want to have information about how they should be storing their guns, how they should be talking to their friends uh, before their children are going over for playdates about how their guns are stored. They want this information, but then the studies are also showing that pediatricians are not giving that information. This is all these studies have really taken place on the outpatient setting. So actually this week, we're about to start our research on what people in the inpatient setting, so when they're hospitalized, and specifically when they are hospitalized for suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation, um, how these parents and caregivers are receptive to receiving this information. My prediction is that they are going to be grateful for this. And the reason that I think that is that we already are coming up with safety plans for them. So 
we talk with them in the hospital, specifically our social workers, about how they store their medication, what they do with their knives, because we know that Mm. these children who come to the hospital for suicidal attempt or ideation are at high risk for another attempt. So we want to help them make their homes as safe as possible when their children go home. So I do think that they will be receptive to these conversations about how to properly store their firearms. Do you get any pressure from uh, the chemical industry or the household cleaning product industry to not talk about how they're storing chemicals or household products um, because they don't want you to talk about these things? Nothing that I know. I will admit that I might not be high en- a high enough name for them to be coming for well, me. Well, I, I, I ask this sort of tongue-in-cheek. I ask this tongue-in-cheek, Dr. Rose, because why is it yes. that we don't get pressure from the chemical industry or from the knife industry or from the pharmaceutical Medication. industry? You actually get but, the opposite. But you, get, but you yeah. get pressure from the gun industry to say, don't talk about gun safety. It seems a little odd, right? It's almost... And, and frankly, in in the state of Florida, right, there was a law that prohibited pediatricians for a long while from talking about guns uh, with patients and patients' parents. And so it, it's it seems a little ridiculous, right, Doctor Doctor Rosenbaum? A hundred percent. And it's honestly it's um it's a little interesting because one of the doctors who I work really close with, who mm-hmm. is just an amazing advocate in this field is Dr. Sandy McKay, Hmm. and she actually works with uh, the owners of gun shops to talk with them about what they could do to help uh, ensure that they're not going to be selling their guns to the next person who is going to either um, commit suicide or be the next mass murderer. And they all are saying in these focus groups that that's not what they want. Like, they do not want to be the person who sold the gun to uh, the next person who goes to a school. So the people, when we talk to those who are selling the um, guns, they really want to actually be um, be promoting more about gun safety. But I think that just from a political standpoint, uh, the politics of it are so far reaching than when you actually talk to people uh, like from a door to door basis. You know, I was at a happy hour last night with a bunch of pediatricians. And one of the things that's really interesting is that pediatricians don't want to get involved in politics. I mean, physicians in general, they, they want to do their job. They want to protect patients and they don't want it to be politicized. And yet it seems that at every turn, right, we're, we're trying to trying figure to. out ways to politicize pediatricians when they really just want to protect kids. Yes, that is exactly correct. Um, I am actually uh, engaged to a pediatric infectious disease doctor. So I see a lot of the political things, especially during the COVID pandemic. And you're right, we really do want to just be taking care of kids. But for a lot of my colleagues and myself, that has become something that we want to take care of kids the best that we could, that we actually have started to have to get involved in politics, yeah. specifically mm-hmm. with, with legislative advocacy. And of course, I mean, our jobs are so time consuming. We would love to just go to work and go home and be able to watch Netflix and relax. But <laughs> kind of the state of this country is not really allowing us to do that. Uh, and I know at least for me, I don't feel like I am doing the the best as a doctor and the most that I could for my patients if I'm not out there and advocating for them on a legislative level. Yeah. That's what that's the goal for everyone. I just go home, relax and watch Netflix. I mean, <laughs> no, that's yeah. it, right? I mean, in general, it's just shocking to hear that this isn't this isn't a norm. I mean, as the number one cause of death, it's a safety risk. It's a public public health risk. I don't know if that's a weird tag to put on it, but in these situations that it's not in the yeah, conversation. Yeah. You ready for Hopefully. our fun five with uh, Dr. Am, Taylor Rosenbaum? Ta- Taylor, we're going to ask you a couple of fun questions. Hey, Taylor, when you okay. were a, when you were a kid, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, I actually think I wanted to be a vet when I was really young, but then this is a little embarrassing. In like tenth grade, I was in AP Bio mm-hmm. and I started watching Grey's Anatomy, and I'm like. Ooh, they have a lot of fun, and I've been wanting to be a doctor ever. You put since. the animals down. Yeah, they need to do yeah. a good a good nighttime soap on uh, vets. You know, I that know would be there doesn't. 
Yeah, it's, uh, and there's all, so many storylines you could follow. All creatures, that. great and small, is just not doing it for people, right? They need something a little bit more. So, and where did you grow up, Taylor? Where Where did you Where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey. In New Jersey, okay. Taylor, what is your favorite, or as a child, what was your favorite book to read or be read? Oh, um, honestly, the one that really stays in my mind is the Phantom Toll Booth. Oh, I yeah. I just think it. Yeah, it's a fantastic Norman book, Jester. and it really makes you, yes, and it makes you kind of open your eyes to what you should be grateful for on an everyday basis, and that if you really have the perspective of trying to enjoy life, you will enjoy it more. You know, I met the author of the Phantom Tollbooth. He was he was a professor. <laughs> oh, wow. He was a professor at Hampshire College, and they did a, a play, uh, sort of a reenactment. It was it was horrible. It was like <laughs> no. the book. The book is so good. You're like, oh, you ruined it with this play. But they tried. It didn't make it to Broadway. I'm just going to say that's hilarious. So uh, Taylor, uh, when they make the uh, the the big Hollywood movie, the Taylor Rosenbaum story. Uh, who's going to play you? Who's going to play you, Taylor? Oh, that's a great question. Ooh, I don't even know. Um, I would hope. Um, I don't know. I would just hope that like the Spice Girls and Lizzo want to be in it, but I don't know who would play it. I mean. If they're going to be in it, I might as well play myself. So I guess a musical, it sounds Taylor, like. It. Taylor wants to play herself. Claire, who's going to play you when they make the Claire Dutra uh, story? You know what's so annoying is I feel like every I have to lean to who looks like me, and everyone says I look like um, Jake Gyllenhaal's sister. I can't think of her name. Oh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I would Taylor's, rather I would Taylor, say Taylor Swift. Swift would be yeah, a better person. I feel like to portray she'd you. be honored to play yeah, me in my very movie. Good, very good. <laughs> With the whole soundtrack. You get the last question last for, for Taylor. Uh, oh, uh, what or who motivates you in life? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, of course, I have to put a shout out to uh, my parents, my sister, and my fiance, mm. as they're all listening. But I think someone actually who works really closely with y'all, uh, with uh, Children at Risk, is one of the doctors that is uh, kind of one of my bosses, Michelle Lopez. And I just think she's amazing. She is just the biggest patient advocate that I have ever met. Uh, Yet she also is really into uh, making sure that her mentees are always excelling in life, helping to find ways to help them thrive in ways they never thought possible, but then also really understands the value of wellness and enjoyment. Yeah, we love Dr. She was one of the pediatricians I was at happy hour with last night. <laughs> oh, the, put a good word in. Dr. Michelle Lopez. Hey, Dr. Taylor Rosenbaum <laughs> is uh, a pediatrician and is on the case to make sure kids are protected. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much, Taylor, for being on the Growing Up in America program. And uh, thank you for all that you do for kids. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. Very good. You've been listening to Growing Up in America here on KPFT, Pacifica Radio, Claire Dutre with Bob Sanborn. And uh, Claire, another great show next week. 12 to 1 every Wednesday. 12 to 1 every Wednesday. We do this each and every day for For children. children. Very good. See you next time. KPFT. It's 90.1 KPFT. Time to check in with the R&R Show. You see, Tom is taking all these psychology classes because he's going to be a psychotherapist. The problem is when they ask him why he wanted to do it, it always gets back to just look up the name Ronnie Renfro. 
it's that I've, I've spent all of my adult life in broadcasting, the music business, show business, as we say. It's, it's presented a number of questions for me over the years. Why? Why well, did you he know, do that? Why exactly. did she do that? Why is it like this? And well, so I'm searching for answers here. Uh, well, you know, I hear that a lot of people in the radio business, TV business, media, they're childlike and they live in their own little world. Kind of. I have been so lucky. I escaped all of that. Uh, my maturity level, of course, is in the stratosphere. We all know that. So uh, that's about it for me, Tom. Your turn. Mm, so it's kind of like uh, <laughs> if you drill all the way t- through the earth, you're going to be on top of the earth on the other side. I see. By going to the stratosphere, that indicates that you've gone so far down that you're on top again. I see. I see. And now, ladies and gentlemen, back to music. Enjoy the great decades of music, banter, and fun. And nonsense. Well, there is that. r and Weekdays 1 to 3 here on KPFT. Every day is radio glory. The following meetings are